we're going to kick it off with Dave Cairns this time around. Um, Dave, a little bit of backstory. We've definitely had you on the mic in this studio. It's been a little while. And then virtually, we did a little thing yeah. talking about the office. I, I think we've actually only done it virtually. So I'm. You've never been here? Well, I've been here, but I have not been in this studio recording a podcast wow. with you. That's Isn't, how many podcasts you are doing. I know. On a I regular lose track. basis. <laughs> I podcast as much as you post on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. Maybe, I, yeah. That's, this, that's better. <laughs> well, Dave, a man that I've known virtually and in real life a little bit is um, a little bit of backstory is a uh, former poker player turned real estate broker uh, who does commercial dealings. And or used <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. used to do commercial dealings, like Mr. Burns. Yeah, like right. Commercial dealings, dealings. Before the pandemic took his livelihood away and sent him to Prince Edward Island. <laughs> yeah, I at least just decided to live in a better place and make no money. Right. Yeah, live next to the source of the wind. You know, mm-hmm. go where it's coldest. Yes, and there are fewer people. Yes, nicer uh, people though. Yeah, very nice people out there. Mm. There's nice people here. It's just there's a lot of schmucks also, you know? Yeah, well, like, the thing about PEI and Charlottetown is it's a big enough place that you can have anonymity, but it's small enough that you can't be an asshole because you'll be found out for being an asshole. Not many charlatans in Charlottetown. Not a lot of charlatans. I do call myself a townsman now, though. A townsman. You're the townsfolk. (laughs) My wife really vomits when she hears me call myself a townsman. I love that. You know, my daughter and I were watching this show called The Wolf Walkers. Did you see that yet? No. It's brilliant. It's on Apple, I think. Okay, Wolf Watchers. Got walkers. It. Wolf Walkers. The okay. Wolf Walkers. And it's, uh, it's about, it's brilliant. Anyone who's listening or watching, you should watch it with their kid or by yourself or with someone that won't judge you. And uh, it's, it's a brilliant animated feature. And um, at some point, you know, these forest uh, people who are wolf walkers, they walk with the wolves, you know, are snatching up snacks on the edge of the forest outside of the town. And they call them uh, town treats. Town treats, okay. Yeah. Or no, townie treats. Townie They're treats. Treats well, that the townies have. Well, we don't like to be called townies. <laughs> oh, sorry, my, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I digress. The point is that you... Um, have worked in commercial bo- brokerage yeah. in Toronto in the Big yeah. Smoke, and uh, you've been doing that remotely. Recently, yes. I f- we all did it remotely for a while, and then I just realized it could continue to be done that way. So you moved, when did you move out of Toronto? Yeah, we moved um, October of last year, so it's been over a year that I've been a townsman. Wow. Mm-hmm. Charlottetown. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's break it down, man. We have been for a while right like 10 episodes nine episodes this is just the gathering podcast but even you know in addition to that on the Startwell podcast talking to a variety of different individuals uh that are typically either team leads or supporting team leads okay uh and supporting teams within organizations dealing with all this craziness of where people do their work how they do their work together what togetherness means for people that never meet each other mm-hmm. might never have met each other yeah all that stuff now I really like this, you know, possibility for us to kind of analyze what's happening in commercial real estate um, and what your take on the role of the physical office is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, contextualized by the trends that you're noticing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to leave this pretty open-ended for you to jump in. Okay. The office question mark, like what what are you seeing? And uh, start with the critical stuff. Tell me the bullshit that you're privy to. Well, let me, you know, it's a good anecdote. I was just at Impact Kitchen, right? Just down the street. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fucking laptops out there. Yeah, people working people in the cafe. Yeah. And the thing that I ask myself, and I should have just gone up and asked some of these people, is how many of them are working for large corporations now? Like, you know, I, I don't believe that the average person that's sitting in there. You're like, get that Pepsi out of your mouth. You work for Coca-Cola, man. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, do you work for Deloitte? Do you work for CIBC? Like, do you, like, where do you work? I think that the notion of, like, the gig worker is now almost like maybe an average worker in, in hmm. sort of like a broad sense, right? So yeah. I found that there's more going on in that space than there is in most financial district office buildings, mm-hmm. certainly on a Monday. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I ask myself, well, what does that mean? Like, why is that the case? And 
I think it's a number of factors. I think for one, it's it's a convenience factor. A lot of the people that are going to be in that space live proximate to that impact kitchen. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of inconvenient to even walk 15, 20 minutes into the financial district to sit down and plop your laptop down and do work that you could do at Impact Kitchen or in your apartment, like near. Like we can't even underscore the inconvenience of like, especially in a city like Toronto where it starts to get cold and wintry and shit. Mm. Like you just rather go there. But then across the street, you got other ship where you could go like take a sauna and a cold plunge. Oh my God. Right? Maybe For people sh- not in Toronto or people in Toronto, not, you know, in the King West weird neighborhood that we're based in. Um, there is a place called Othership that that Dave's talking about, which is a place where it's it's like a communal schwitz. <laughs> and, uh, I schwitz alone at home in PEI. Right? Yeah, I, me I too. Have my own sauna, but I go in the basement. Some people like to do it that way. Yeah, and it's like a party vibe. It's like you know, apparently people stay up. You know, instead of going out to a nightclub, they they're advertising. We'll have you believe the you know you can go and schwitz with people, and it's just as thrilling. Yeah, there you go. I mean, but look, like when you think about that, mm-hmm. there's more, there's convenience, there's amenities, there's people who are choosing to co-locate. Like what I think might be happening there too is a bunch of friends who may work at different companies that are sitting around a table together working and they like hanging out with those people maybe more than they necessarily like going downtown and sitting next to Bob or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, like what I what I think has happened is that remote working is really just changing the relationship with urban environments. And it's probably also resulting in what a colleague of mine likes to call peak centralization. Like, have we reached peak centralization? Okay, but this is a critique of this, like, you know, post-1950s CBD, yeah. you know, let's not rethink the downtown because back when we had, like, white flight, you know, it set the tone for the future and we can't redesign our future, right? This is like... Yeah. This North American. We're talking about North America right now. Also. For sure. Yeah. We're talking about a Western way of living and thinking and working. So like, I'm, yeah. Yeah. But, so, but like, if, have we asked, do we ask ourselves that question? Have we reached that point? Right. We're like, look at someone like me. Hmm. I moved to Charlottetown because I can. So you you're know? talking about like, when, is the concept here that like the city can't offer certain people more or enough? Yeah. In terms of lifestyle values. Well, I think it's doing two things. I think remote work is changing the relationships with cities and making it more about living and less about working. I think that's one shift that's happening. But then I think the other is people just being more free to be able to choose where they want to live because a lot of the work that is being done is the kind of work that's being done in Impact Kitchen. Mm. Right? And so if people don't need to come together with the same level of frequency, it just opens up the door for a lot more people to decide – where they live, why they live there, how they work, why they work that way. And so a lot of that is pretty disruptive to long-term office leases. So what do you think, uh, or what are you seeing, um, or how are you seeing that play out for your clients? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've sort of navigated away a little bit from working with companies and focusing more on working with people like you in the flex space arena. I'm um, a company, man. You are a company. But you're you're someone whose product is is the office or is a physical environment. So you're saying you're moving away from supporting um, the signing of long term leases for companies and instead something a little bit more flexible. Well, I'm trying to work with the providers that are trying to shift the the product type to match more what the future demand actually wants, and that's going to be quite varied. Obviously, I mean you're doing a great job of leaning into corporate events and meetings, right? For you know taking the notion that teams are disparate and like. They don't need to come together even when they live in the same city, you know, for a full work day. Yeah, we do on-demand. We do on-demand being, you know, some smaller spaces are by the hour. Otherwise, it's like full days. So you book a space to start well for a full day. Yeah. That full day could be bought on-demand at full price or you could save by bulk buying. So that's a really interesting thing. Totally revolutionizing this idea of space where it's like buy the right to use space when you need it at discount. By committing to the use case, you know? A certain number of times a year or whatever, right? Like you you take the corporate budget that people have for events and meetings and say, throw some of that our way and buy it in advance. Or to your point, not just events and meetings, office events and meetings. Sure, yeah. Like any need for any space that your company has where that space allows people to come together? Yeah. We have solutions. There you go. So you're working with probably some of the more forward-thinking companies out there. But you asked me the question, like, what, what would I be talking about with clients? Like, 
some of them are really open-minded mm-hmm. and have moved into a remote work, remote first way of thinking. But most are like grappling with this notion of hybrid work, which is almost like a fashion trend. Like yeah. It, what, 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 what does that trend, what does that actually mean in a, in a day-to-day, like a, a monthly kind of scenario when you say hybrid work for some of your clients that you're Well, yeah. About? I mean, I think they think of it in a very rigid and static way, right? It's like everybody comes on these days. Oh, I see. And works here. Like hoteling their office. Yeah, it's like come on Monday, come on Thursday. Excuse me, those are the days. Okay. And that's kind of shitty because it doesn't allow companies to really reduce their office space footprint very much if everybody's expected to be there on the same days. And that's the knock-on effects are significant. Like, Why I, do you think that is? Like for the companies, if there are trends, why do you think companies are a bit um, – uh, resistant to change in the sense of either dropping that square footage or, you know, using it in a non-full team, full day way? I think it is broadly interwoven with the idea that culture is the office. And like when I say the office, it's the central office. And so I think that they feel that the brain trust is there, all the work has to be done there, and it has to be done in a rigid fashion that looks like people mostly sitting at their desks doing whatever task they do for a prescribed period of time mm-hmm. that's built off of a way that the world doesn't really work anymore. Um, and so, yeah, like just kind of like to try to round this out, um, I don't think a lot of companies have really massively changed their thinking. I think a lot of companies are just renewing leases um, without really asking themselves, like, why do they need that space? It's just easy. It's still easier in 2022, almost 2023, to just kick the can down the road. Yeah, and that, that comes from a couple different things, right? Like, if you look at a financial management question, in 2020, you had a lot of shedding of OPEX, a lot of companies kind of saying, um, okay, we're going we're gonna to kick the can in a different way. We're going to kick the can specifically around how to deal with this, right? It started then. Like, I, I remember for months in Q2, Q3, well, fuck it, the whole year, 2020, the whole year. I was talking to so many uh, support staff and leaders at all different types of organizations, like picking up the phone and saying, hey, guys, let me help you. Let me help you soundboard the zombie apocalypse, right? And, and I'm going to do that because for five years, you know, and many years before that, outside of Startwell as a brand, uh, I've been managing remote teams and distributed teams, and this is definitely the way that things are going. Mm-hmm. So how do you plan ahead? How do you figure out the cultural piece? Like, you can handle your risk mitigation. You can handle your disinfection plans, you know, but let me handle this kind of uh, soundboarding of, of of how you damage control your knowledge pool and retain staff and think through facilitating opportunity. Um and yeah, it was funny because in, in 2020, it started this whole idea of, of kind of willing ignorance. A lot of team leads saying, I don't want to figure this out, you know? And a lot of people were like, well, I don't need to figure it out because we can afford the rent. That's not even a question. Yeah. Right? And then I was saying, well, that's great, right? I'm not saying save save money for the sake of it. In fact, that's stupid to me. Um, you know, especially if you're a cash-flowing business and you're a big business, Um Cutting those costs is a bit short-sighted for the sake of it. Instead, say, what does real estate mean to my organization? And how can real estate support the culture of my people? Not necessarily in the sense of like Dilbert comic strip, insert people here in cubicles. But, I mean, what do people, you you started by talking about the city, right? And how the city's, uh, the relationship uh, people have to the city, especially workers who are migrant workers, you know, whether it is coming from the suburbs for the day or whatever else, mm-hmm. they're investing in traveling to the city. Uh, how does this, the, that role the city plays, uh, how is it something that can be owned by a company is the question that I'm pushing on people. Yeah. And it, honestly, I think you make a good point that the office needs to be that city because they're not likely going to be interacting too much with the broader city. Like right. they're, they're there to interact with other colleagues. They're there for some purpose that serves the company's mission in some way mm-hmm. while, while hopefully serving their own as well. But like the company is asking them to commute two, two hours each way or probably in a better sense, they're actually co-locating with these colleagues downtown because – Turns out it's the most convenient way for a bunch of people from these cities that you described to be able to meet in one place because it's above convenient transit and things like that. But you are making a good point that that environment that they go to, the company office, but really more broadly, the building, 
and maybe the maybe the whole building is a Starwell building, for example. But like, the point is, it has to be really compelling. It has to do the things that Impact Kitchen is somehow doing. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies. I mean, in the public narrative, like in in the mass media narrative of North America, there seems to be a popular opinion that for two decades now, I would say in North America, that we can learn from Google. Like everyone is turning to the big tech giants to say they know something we don't because they're ahead of us. And being ahead in this like linear narrative North American life uh, is important. And being uh, first in category, you know, in an industry means that you're not only competitively winning, but you have this kind of untapped divine knowledge. Yeah. And so like the whole, like, you know, all the aspects of the, you know, the, the, the tech head offices with the chefs and the kitchens and the slides and the ping pong and the like lounge areas Those were designed to enslave people <laughs> mostly. Tell like, me more. Well, I mean, like when you really think about it, those, those companies want people spending as many of their waking hours as possible inside of the brain trust and hopefully working on the brain trust in one way or another. Yeah. It's like, we'll fly in papayas for you to eat, you know, for the special dessert buffet. And then when you soil your pants from those papayas, we have in-house laundry. Yeah. And you can sleep in our hotel cubicle. It's fucked. But like uh, you, you make another good point there, which is, and I've been asking myself this question for years, which is these companies created some of the most innovative technologies that exist today. But they, they didn't innovate on how they worked, really. They actually took a similar model to a traditional bank, really. They just made it a more fun and inviting place to be. But they didn't allow asynchronous work. You know, in, like they just didn't do any of the things that the pandemic really did for everybody. And so, like, you asked me in the beginning, like, what's changed or whatever. Like, I think two things have really happened. WeWork exposed the fact that office buildings are at risk. And they're at risk, and it's not because we were some special company or anything. Like, I, I have nothing extremely positive or extremely negative to say about them. But they were the first consumer-facing brand that was known to not just people in the real estate industry, but maybe, like, I could have dinner with somebody and they would know what WeWork was, right? Yeah. Nobody knew what Regis was. Yeah, so, WeWork popularized more than any other brand in North America the phrase, the word co-working, not necessarily the cultural values of the yeah, movement. yeah. Yeah, but they but in the context of the office industry, they expose the fact that buildings are at risk because they're not doing what companies want and ultimately what end users want. Mm. So companies want lease flexibility, and users want the impact kitchen thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so whether or not WeWork was fulfilling on those promises directly or not, the the idea became front and center, right? And so that's big problem. That's very problematic for financial core buildings. They have to fully reinvent how they exist from the inside out. They have to be about build, measure, learn instead of like, if you build it, they will come. Right. And then there's a lot of stock that may or may not be useful anymore, right? Then the pandemic, the way that I describe the pandemic is it's like everybody used the first version of an iPhone. Mm. Like that's not natural. Like normally there would be an adoption curve, but a bunch of people just got thrown into remote working and that is going to stir the pot. You know what I mean? And I think that we're now seeing a massive acceleration. Like the fact that you're going to be able to go out and probably in 2023 through 2025 sell a shitload more types of events, meetings, and working for the day than would have been the case if the pandemic didn't happen. I think we've accelerated that. We've compressed it because everybody got put the I, first I, version of the iPhone in their hands. I like being that. remote work. I like that, but I will say for our listeners who are interested in learning more about co-working, uh, state of the industry for commercial real estate in Toronto and all this stuff, that it's actually not true from my perspective as an operator. So you like the, it and don't like it, okay. No, no, it's not that. I'm just saying the assumption. So I see this, this a lot in the commercial real estate world where it's like, you know, old versus new, okay? A new is, let's call it multi-use space mm-hmm. where people in the new working environment are coming together to yes, collaborate, but also to use space in different ways. I agree with that, that the newness of it is that that will become an increasingly desired thing, but the newness from the provision side of things is not necessarily new. The availability of space in a hybrid format as a template for collaborative work is not new. It's new to a lot of types of organizations, right? 
Um, if you look at how creatives have typically worked, some of the most successful uh, or otherwise some of the most um, empowered teams at creative agencies you know, around the world, uh, the way that they work is very different. And I don't mean in terms of like the slave driver mentality of like pump out creative and then once you've reached a certain seniority in your job, you, you get your name on the project. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, in terms of the like kind of hack the planet ethos of like, I need a space to be inspired to do cool work. And then that will enable our client base to, you know, sell more shit. Um, those industries have been definitely like more or provided more fun places to work, possibly to counterbalance the stress of the job, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So like there's this kind of like now more people are learning about better ways to do things kind of side to things. Yeah. But I'll say this from our experience, it's not necessarily resulting in a mass populace adoption suddenly of what is new and better. Like it's a slow burn, man. Every single customer who comes to Startwell, and this is not like marketing, advertising bullshit, um, loves the experience. We have very successful, happy uh, coming togethers of people when they book space here. They love it. Even just being in the front there, talking to Masha, it was great. Right. Spoke to her for like 30 minutes while you, you know, made me wait. But it was was good. (laughs) Sorry for that. But yeah, like the point is, you know, Monday shouldn't feel like Monday here. There's always a great conversation and there's always nice coffee and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. But anyway, so what you're saying is that the, I'm saying it's accelerated an existing trend massively. You're saying, yeah, but no, also at the same time. Right. Because it's still a slog to convince most companies to buy office space or buy places where people do shit in the way you think they should be doing it. Is in, that what you're saying? We haven't changed our model much at Startwell because of the pandemic. In the last two and a half, let's call it three years, I have built out more media production capability on campus, but that has its own business model, mm-hmm. right? I'm not really making money off of people coming for meetings on the media side of the business. Um, once in a while we'll do like, you know, meeting recap video for a commercial client. We'll have, uh, some content recording at, you know, the coming together of people cause it's like a special occasion. Yeah. But for the most part, we can't rely on that like value added, you know, service as our revenue for the business. So realistically we're doing similar stuff. We've just reduced our office footprint and made it more in a meeting spaces, but we always had like, I have 20,000 square feet under management. 10 of it has always been meeting spaces and monetized on demand. Yeah, so you were ahead of the curve in in the way you designed the space because most WeWorks were obviously like little shoebox offices, not not a lot of amenity in meeting spaces. The design of WeWork, again, for people not in the know, was really a calculated uh, effort to raise the cost per square foot to customer and maximize the square foot allocation of monetizable space per location. Yeah. Make the most out of the smallest footprint possible. It wasn't about let's give all this cool space to the people. No, it looked like a cell block. Like yeah. you go into certain WeWorks, it literally looks like a cell block in yeah. a prison. And so it's very it's exciting to think that like co working is taking over everything, right? And that like because no one wants and this math, because yeah. no one wants to go into an office or for the most part, a lot of the office stock that's sitting vacant, landlords will want to lease out. Yeah, on, and on demand it, terms, they'll do it with more co-working operators. Totally, but, but are those co-working operators net net doing anything? Most of them are selling bullshit. Let me just be totally blunt. They're going to go out and lie to everyone they can to stay afloat, and they're doing micro WeWork model. Yeah, I hear you. Well, so one of the things like, you're making me think of an observation I made um, roughly six months ago, and and over the last six months. Which is so you you'll hear great co-working operators, and when I say great, I really mean they're rented out, like they're doing their job of renting the space and driving revenue from it. So let's 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 be clear that that's what I mean by great in this context. Yeah, they're, they're, you mean successful? Successful, sure. You'll hear them say they're they're a hundred percent rented or occupied. But yeah. That, but the term occupied is really all in the definition because right. there's actually not a lot of occupancy in these buildings. They're, they're being rented, but they're not being occupied. They're ghost towns. Yeah, and so what I, I make the joke that companies have gone from long-leased ghost towns to short-leased ghost towns. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
and it's a win financially, um, but nobody's really genuinely diving into solving what's going to make people want to go. And like, again, I, I keep going to this impact kitchen thing because no one's forcing those people to go there. Yeah, no, it's super like, interesting. I think that this is something we keep coming up against. Like, even though I have all this stock and all this stuff, I'll tell you this, like adoption for our on-demand um, offering is certainly higher per capita than it was in 2019. The commitment to space usage is lower though. So what I mean by that is as we connect with a larger number of companies in our sales outreach and in our inbound and, and, and whatever through our media as well, you know, anyone watching yeah. or listening to this wants to email me, do so and we'll talk. But as people reach out and come in our door, they kind of see the need for what we provide more than ever before, 100% tick mark. Um, will they return? I'll tell you a few reasons that challenge this whole return story. And the, turning a one-off um, meeting customer into an on-demand uh, pre-commit, which we do. We're doing that. Like We're selling credits for some companies, and companies are buying in. I'm not saying every company is, is kind of reluctant to commit to using flexible space. Um, but you're seeing, and, and part of this series examines this, right? We've already had a few people talk to this note of the challenges to managing a remote team. So it's wonderful that, you know, people don't need to be enslaved to commuting long hours in their day uh, to a core that they don't even interact with, mm -hmm. you know, just to go into their office. Um, but at the same time, remote work doesn't necessarily um, replace a lot of the values of team camaraderie that you have in real life okay so assuming that like everyone's a pedestrian at your company and they live within a, like a two block radius of your office they're probably going to have a different you know uh value for that office than if they commuted in and for the companies who have this kind of like localized urban population that makes up the team um you know they have a, a huge value for for communion and that story is kind of not really as told and celebrated. But regardless, you take those people and you stratify them, then it's a little bit more difficult to get what you had before. Anyway, so what we do here, which is real wicked, is like people come together and they love it. Cause, and literally, we're talking like the city of Toronto, uh, their e-gaming kind of office is a new office that promotes like e-gaming and, and uh, digital entertainment in the city. Mm-hmm talking about how like some of our customers fit into that cohort and we're saying when these teams whether it's those guys or otherwise come in how is the city uh, available to them and the truth is the city of toronto is scratching their heads about this they really want to figure it out but they don't know how to and they have a lot of like large um you know corporates reaching out to them to say well, we want to make toronto a destination for our people globally but you know what what does that mean for them and they're scratching their heads. We have an undersupply of hotel beds in the city. We have very poor transit linkages. Mm -hmm. We have terrible road infrastructure that's constantly under, you know, redevelopment. Mm -hmm. um, we have pedestrian walkways that don't have, you know, proper kind of, let's say, streetscaping. I have a client from London in the flex world. Won't name him just to... Not to call him out. Um, but he sort of said to me, he goes, you know, Toronto just doesn't feel like a very metropolitan city to me. Like where I'm from, you know, entertainment, work, leisure, um, like restaurants, I guess you call that entertainment, and, and people living. Like it all coexists mm -hmm. very harmoniously on top of one another. And he was remarking that office occupancy is higher there. Now, it's not anywhere close to where it was pre-pandemic, but in certain boroughs of London – there's far more activity than there is in this city. We've already um, we've suffered this problem in Toronto since since forever, right? The, Toronto's those Toronto the good. It's never been Toronto the great. Like, and this is a, a kind of a that anecdote or that that kind of simile simile yeah. um, thing that I said. Yeah. Or whatever that's called in English, this language that's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> that's a mindfuck. Let's not go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> but like basically. Toronto, I mean, I've always held this opinion since moved moving here in 2005, is that, like, this is a really cool city. The diversity, the ethnic diversity and otherwise in this city is only getting even more so varied and exciting because of that. Yeah. 
Um, but because of the topography of the city and the fact that, you know, the city was built on top for the most part, the major arteries were literally roads paved on top of uh, trading routes. Like they were pathways that people used to walk to the river and to the lake on. And then they literally, when the first draft of, of urban planning happened, they paved or first put stones and then paved those same paths, thinking that people would want to keep living in the ways that they had been living before they uh, uh, were replaced with other people, you know? Yeah. And it's a very interesting thing because then a grid kind of got bootstrapped into that and then the city got built. And, and, and as that happened over the last, let's call it a couple, 300 almost years, uh, two and a half, maybe about 200, 250 years, Torontonians never had a density that was mixed use. They always had these like high streets, you know, and it, it could be an emulation a little bit of, of old York, of London, right? Yeah. But like, because we didn't have that mixed use um, that was pervasive, and we didn't really have the borrowing that you have in London, um, everything was a bit more expansive and especially the growth of the city really happening as a lot of American cities, you know, kind of post-war, post-Second World War. So you had this expansionism in the city that was a very suburban kind of expansionism. People wanting houses, post-war houses being built to afford that space, you know, um, within the home. Um, and because of that, the density wasn't quite there. They didn't build up that much. Um, there isn't much history to, to afford that. And also, this is something then that convolutes this is that now we've got this massive race towards density as this is the biggest city in Canada with a massive immigration uh, trajectory. Um, and though we had some net migration to the burbs and elsewhere because of the pandemic and prices going up, yeah, um, it's been counterbalanced already, right? There's not enough rental properties on the market. If no. you're looking for an apartment to live in. There's, like, I've never questioned that people would want to live in cities. I never even, no, even thought people would do what I'm doing. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that though we have so many people within this city and our urban population is exponentially growing, in fact, construction cranes can't afford enough housing for the city. People who live in the city, right? So the larger narrative of critiquing the office usage is always about transit commuters. It's always about people in the suburbs. But the truth... The just, tr just saying that like there's just it's not easy enough to get to the office, is that what you mean? Yeah, what I'm saying is like for the most part, the critique of the relevance of office, traditional office space is often... Um, yeah, it's not the offices of the commute is what people yeah. would say. And I think that that oversimplifies it and is not yeah, but what's, remotely accurate. But. but what I'm working towards is this question of like as we build more apartment complexes, condos, right? Um, and we're moving subtly up and we're not building neighborhoods around those condos because the streetscape is really just, you know, ground floor retail popularized by what, of course, every tower needs, which is like a subway sandwich store and a yeah. nail parlor. Yeah. You know, it's not really afforded by the people. It's afforded by whoever, whoever will pay rent. Yeah. Um, we're, we're kind of pushing in this interesting direction and, and this is, I'm, I'm leading this to say, I haven't seen a want for the city to evolve from the urban population's drive, like people who live in the city kind of reclaiming space, possibly because, you know, it is very expensive still to take on space, to pay for space, to rent it. Um, but I, I think that is very interesting to look at the fact that, like, we've got whatever percentage of the city empty in terms of the upper floors of the office buildings empty, um, and yet we have so many people in this city that could potentially make use of that space. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, and I want to ask you something unrelated that you've made me think about earlier in what you said, but on the notion of using that space differently, one of the biggest problems is the size of a lot of floor plates is just too yeah, like 20,000 square foot floors. Or yeah, like bigger? you just can't get like enough natural light into some of these spaces for them to be anything but like office or vertical farming is kind of the problem. And I think you see that in Calgary, right? Like they've had a 25 to 30% vacant market or whatever for a long time. That's a quoted stat too. Cause the real numbers are more like, you know, 50 to 60%. Yeah, for sure. Cause of like so much space is just not being used. Um, but still is whatever least. Um, so they haven't done a lot though with those massive buildings cause they just can't do anything with them is the problem. 
if they could, they would. So like, it's kind of scary when you think about that. Yeah. And like, I think Canada across the board though, Canada has always had that feel, right? Like, and this is the whole like Chicago versus Toronto thing. We've never had the density because of our urban planning in terms of residential. We've never had the density that even a city like Montreal, right? Has had very different kind of city built since the 1600s with row housing and multi um, family dwellings since day one. Um, we've had this push towards single family dwellings for a long time in Toronto. Um, so density isn't part of the psyche. And in a lot of, you know, Canada, it's like that where people are constantly questing for more space. This is this whole like suburban push, right? People wanting to live in the suburbs over the city because people don't, um, conceive of the possibility of, or even seek the opportunity for, uh, intermingling. There's a, you know... Intermingling means what? Exactly. Socially. The, our cities don't have palazzos. You know, this is... Mm-hmm. They're not palazzos, wrong word. Piazzas. We don't have these, like, common... Like, there are very few squares. There's not there's like, fountains yeah. everywhere. We yeah. don't have a pedestrian... The cities aren't built for pedestrian think, I'm thinking of Lisbon, which feels like the opposite of what you're describing. Like, yeah. when I went to Lisbon, I feel like there's... People, there's stuff everywhere, everywhere, people yeah. everywhere, things, everywhere. anything you want, you go to the place and it's there. And it's, yeah. you know, the yeah, selection like, might be small, but you could get what you need. Yeah. There's like a whole bunch of like old dudes with like these half like beers and they, I guess are convincing themselves they're not drinking, but they're just drinking half beer. No, after no, you're half just beer. passing time. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just chilling. Um, no. So I think that's a, that's a big thing, right? Is yeah. that like, we've had this kind of worker culture that's been, um, the city hasn't been designed for quality of life. Let's say it that way. Yeah. Now, you know what? It's funny because, so my wife, we, we just came into town with our daughter, right? A couple of days ago. And every time we come in, she's always like, oh man, like, did we like, she does not say we made a mistake, but she's just like, she gets caught up in some of the amenities, rightfully so, right? That she's missing. Like, mm, you know, oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Like, you know, whatever, cooler food restaurants and just like, she even liked the idea of taking our daughter Elle on the streetcar and bringing her yeah, around with fun. ease. It's fun, yeah. whatever. Right. But I think she ends up always arriving back at the problem that you're describing, which is that it's devoid of real connection and real interaction here. And there's a lot of like barriers end up making you stressed out and like transit is one of them like you're you're happy to be on the subway with your daughter for the first half of the first day and then you're like kill me now you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah and and look all urban places have their problems right but this is worse this is worse yeah toronto like, toronto needs tokyo is not like that like you can different cultures yeah. different history of design uh you know urban design urban theory urban planning um, this is in many ways a city left to its own devices, which is going to be interesting, I think, for the next two decades. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like to ask your opinion on this. So, like, as there is a cultural evolution perhaps happening with, with people, like you're seeing it, like you said, you're helping more people into flexible solutions, companies into flexible solutions than, like, full-on leases. Yeah. What do you think the evolution of that is? And is it a trend that is going to be the main place in the next five years or... It feels like a stepping stone. Um, and I, I come back to this, like, I'm going to butcher it, but like Gary Vaynerchuk, the, I mean, some people like him, some people don't. I don't, I kind of find him annoying. Gary V. Yeah. Maybe people find me annoying. Record like all your life. Share it. <laughs> share it. Share it. Post, 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 post. Yeah, exactly. Post and then post some more and then hire people to post for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I might fall victim to that same thing. So maybe that's why I don't like myself sometimes. But either way. <laughs> Wait, let's just pause there. <laughs> You're in a safe space. <laughs> Tell us more. We, we can maybe come back to it if you want to get away from the, the real estate and ask about my personal life. I'll share. But um, he's famous for saying, you, you're worried, companies are worried about the great resignation. It's the great never apply mm-hmm. that they should be worried about. Yeah. And whether he's being dramatic or not with the sentiment, I think he's kind of right and so you asked me like like what do you think the long term is i have no idea but i do ask myself the question when you think of that example where it's like a bunch of people that are making money off tiktok youtube they're they're finding creative ways to make revenue from three or four different things that they do you know how common or uncommon is that going to be in the future obviously there's a lot of risk 
that is tied to living your life oh that God. way, right? Such a joke, right? I, I always laugh about this shit, man. All these like people making money off of ad subsidization of their content. And then it's like, oh, but uh, no one wants to advertise on that platform anymore. Yeah. Well, Sorry, you're out of a job. You're in Bali and you can't pay rent. There's that, obviously, for sure. But then there's also like the human nature element of it, which is like, do human beings just value working for a more stable employer and within a more stable job? Like, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think employment is going to be as stable as it has been going forward. So I think more and more people are going to have to think about things this way. Then I ask myself, my daughter, she's being dubbed Generation Glass, which I'm assuming your daughter falls I in. I haven't heard this. Oh. Yeah, so effectively in simple My terms. daughter is Generation Hammer. <laughs> but she's in her own generation by herself. Got it. Well, I left my phone out of the room to be here with you, but the reason that they call them Generation Glass is because they're the first generation to be born into touch screens. Oh, I see. Yeah. I thought you meant they were so fragile. No, no, no. They were no. like, oh my God, so fragile? No, 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 no. Yeah, the, the devices. Okay. So, like, you know, I, who? What? it's going to be so interesting to watch these kids be 20 and 25 years old. Like, how are they going to want to live and work? So, like, to go, to, to close the loop, like, I think right now we're just dealing with like how to deal with one ghost town to another ghost town and make it like more efficient, less strain on the environment, meet ESG goals. But I think the way that we work is under siege and eventually it's not going to resemble anything that looks like how it does today. I just have no idea what that really means. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I I definitely, I agree with you. I think the nature of work in North America, especially in the major urban metropoles like Toronto, which have had a nine to five working culture around massive corporations, predominantly employing the bulk of the population. And this is interesting, right? And I'm privy to these numbers, just obviously being a small businessman and um, and talking to representative groups, associations, and stuff that tried to protect our interests going into the pandemic or living through it, right? Um, but the truth of the matter is in Canada, you know, we've got like kind of three cohorts of employers. We've got, you know, the government of all areas, yeah, right? Federal, provincial, municipal. We have all these government peoples. It's about what is it half a million people yeah i think you're about right that's about the number yeah then you've got you know massive corporations the coca-colas or whoever big banks whatever yeah Yeah. then you've got uh smbs and smbs per capita or not per capita yeah well let's say like this for every company that fits in a smb category small to medium-sized business you've got you know smaller per uh company uh employee count but the amalgam of all those businesses uh, it's makes bigger up, than yeah, it's bigger than all of them, right? Yeah, is that, is that accurate? You, absolutely, yeah. it's the biggest Especially employer class. Like retail, yeah. When you go beyond just office related work, I assume that's where it gets bigger, right? Yeah, you got like obviously you've got some startups, you've got new ventures, you've got uh, retail businesses, you've that include hospitality, you've got informal work sector, industrial related stuff, like yeah, yeah, all of it, yeah. So it's super interesting um, because that's also the toughest kind of segment of people to get together, right? Um, so I do think that in the next few years, we're going to see in Canada, I think Canada is uniquely positioned. I've always been saying this, that Canada is uniquely positioned to um, encourage uh, a class of entrepreneurship to solve new problems and monetize their solutions as business people. Uh, and we have a huge amount of potential where, where we have a lot of difficulty is in educating those possibilities. Even this whole thing of like management, you know, business, the only business you could do 20, 30 years ago is probably the same for the most part. Now you couldn't do entrepreneurship as a, as a program. Yeah. But at the same time, we're at a, a crisis now where like those large corporations are not necessarily hiring quote unquote managers. The, the role of the manager is different now. Did so, you see that TikTok video that recently came out where this like woman bashed uh, office? The office is like a religion, and she talked about managers like performing like ceremonies, like of just walking around, <laughs> observing people, and like people would give sacrifices to the managers, like an email, and it's really funny. You gotta watch it. <laughs> yeah, there is this whole like funny thing, right? Of like the cult of the uh, the office where the hierarchy must be kind of enforced and respected. Yeah. So this is where I want to actually ask you the thing from earlier. So like I grew up, sorry, when I say grew up corporately, I grew up in an office environment 
at CBRE. And I, I'm not here to actually knock it. I built a, we built a great team up to, you know, me and a guy that was in his 50s. We joined forces. I eventually became his 50-50 equity partner. And we built a team that ended up being eight people. And it was a great pursuit. Um, but what I look at in the rearview mirror is that we, there was a lot of like jabbing and weird stuff going on that was sort of based on office culture. Mm. You know, like for example, once I had my daughter, they were having an 8.30 in the morning meeting uh, on Mondays or whatever. And it was just really inconvenient for me to get there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd come into this meeting and I'd feel really awkward that like everybody was there and I wasn't, right? And you just sort of like, the pandemic like lifted that whole way of thinking where like those conventions yeah, I mean, look, debunked toxic right? office culture. Toxic office culture is, is 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 stupid and needs to be fixed. Yeah, but then okay, let me finish because like now today I'm doing business with a guy at a different company who you know, Ben Wright. Um, oh yeah, Ben. Yeah, so we're we're co-brokering. Looks like the damn Big Lebowski, that guy. <laughs> He's a great guy. Yeah, shout out to Ben. Totally. Um, but we're. We're co-brokering deals together. We're not even at the same company. Yeah. I'm now working with a guy inside of my company that I didn't have the opportunity to work with because it just – it actually didn't jive based on hierarchy. He was too young and I was too young to partner, right? Like the idea is like young person partners with Sounds senior like person. Sounds like 80s song. But then you – yeah. But then you realize a few years in, you're like, wait a minute. We should be working together. But yeah. now I'm impregnated in this business partnership and like it just doesn't work out, right? But now I'm working with Ben who I've never met. Okay. Never met in him person. in person. Never okay. once met him. I speak to the guy every day. We yeah. were working on tons of deals, working with a guy who I didn't get the opportunity to work for. Yeah. And I live in PEI. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's, so it's like, and I'm in real estate. And so it's like, it's just fundamentally changed. So what but my question for you is this, a lot of people poke holes in me when I share my story on the internet. They say, you're self-motivated, your job function, you know, makes it easy for you to do it this way. Nobody pays you or whatever. You're just basically a self-motivated person and you don't represent the average person. And I think that that's accurate. I do agree with that. And I don't say that with ego. I just think it's true. Mm -hmm. But I always sort of come back to being like, well, that doesn't mean that like everybody has to go to the corporate HQ to do their job. They really just need the right technology tools and maybe they need a location that isn't their home. But that doesn't mean that they all have to go to 145 King Street West every day. I think that that's a flawed piece of thinking. So like, what do you think about the whole concept of it? Because I, I just want to assess my own bias in that my leaving the office as my primary place of engagement, that's the way I look at it. Like it's, it's no longer my primary place of engagement. Yeah. It has opened up so many more doors for me than the environment that I was working and living in before. Yeah. But I don't know if I'm well, like, look, I was just talking to um, to Reza from Wave about this for the, the, the episode before this one and reminiscing about my own history, which actually predates, you know, my, my kind of like mid-20s. I've been, I, look, I've been working since I was a teenager. I've been working in, in tech since I was a teenager. Um, and since day one, it was really about using technology to connect people that's been like the, a common theme in all my work right all my different entrepreneurial ventures uh the time i had a job and <laughs> and like and all this cool software that i've built over the over the time and it's interesting so we're talking how many years now i'm 42 i've been working on shit since i was like a teenager right so it's a long time mm -hmm. 30 years mm -hmm. i've been like making money yeah so what's interesting is for me is that I have always believed in remote work. Since I first dialed up to a BBS before the internet, I believed in remote work. Mm -hmm. I believed in the power of the computer to connect people. And I've actually built startups to do that, you know? So I'm really optimistic about uh, North America's embrace late in the way I would see it, late embrace of technology to empower people to not only do work, bigger, better, faster, more, but just do their work in a way that can free up their lifestyle. Um, and look, in, well, in my case, not just free up lifestyle, like access people I couldn't access before and new people. But that's that part like, of it. That's the way I look whoa, at it. Like this is yeah. way better. I know, look like, at it like that. Like if, if work, you know, like 
Yeah, exactly. Work in new ways, no matter what, and be able to be connected to more and, and people. And what's really interesting about this example that you brought up is that you've always had that potentiality, but habits and your in your your in real life habitude. Yeah, the office as the primary place of engagement was the problem for me, right? Like I just got trapped in this box. Sure, that's with the, this way of like working and sure. like, and I didn't have the time to go and meet people in the same way that I did in the pandemic from other places in the world. Mm -hmm. I, the technology was there, mm -hmm. but the willingness to participate in that way was not mm -hmm. for myself and others, right? Yeah, yeah. but That's you're talking about like taking away your physical habitude and your weekly schedule, mm -hmm. enabling you to kind of like have more freedom to like think and connect with people. Yes. And so, but, but are we maybe people like me and you, anomalies, and do most people require a specific environment to go to every day, supervision... Yada, yada, yada. Very few people can be self-directed in life. I'll say it like that. But it's definitely a desirable attribute uh, of any worker for an employee, employer, sorry, to see self-direction as a skill. You know, if, if, if someone yeah, working... Yeah, it's not like an inherent quality. It can be learned. Yeah, but the difficult sure. thing for most organizations is they, it's very difficult to give the keys to an employee to say, you know, you're, you drive. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Well, they don't know how to teach it is the problem. Mm -hmm. I learned it from my days playing poker. Like, the, I, I, when we played cards, like, we never thought about, like, defining where we worked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we just, like, either played online ourselves, played online with other people yeah. in either internet cafes or other people's houses, or even sometimes people had poker offices. We just went where it made sense, and then we played live in person like this yeah. when it made sense. And we just did it based on whether it made sense. That what, was it. What I've always found is as long as deliverables are um, specifically communicated and the means of communication cross team are clearly articulated so that people know what's expected of them in an organization. The next expectation should be to have fun at work. And if someone's not having fun, there should be means of feedback within organizations to be able to manage that. Mm -hmm. And, and Defi I sorry, defining fun though is such a fucked up thing because some people fun is like going to the office, being around other people all the time. My version of fun is freedom. So it's like, I could be at odds in theory with people totally. in my organization that define fun one way. And I'm like, well, I want to be able to do but that's be okay. wherever yeah. I want. And that you know? should be okay. If we're talking about yeah. designing, see, I think a lot of this debate in real estate, it's interesting. Uh, the counterbalance to kind of like the empty offices is, is really like, what is the state of the new organization? And, you know, they're not necessarily at, od at odds with each other. I don't think at all. Um, but, uh, but I think that, yeah, <laughs> And again, it's tough for me in my brain to, to limit my thinking to North America because we're such an exclusive um, uh, area of the world in terms of dealing with this like remote culture, remote work question. Mm -hmm. It's a very localized problem or not problem, but scenario. In other parts of the world, there's many of them. Um, these things are not being talked about. And they're not being talked about because they're being acted upon or because it's not possible? Well, like we started, like we were talking about London, right? So it's more like the quality of life, of work life in a lot of urban contexts is far better than Toronto. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's like the, the, like perhaps workplaces are less, now this is an overstatement. They're not necessarily less toxic because they are, um, more integrated into the rest of other people's lives, you know, in different cities. But at the same time, if people are privy to a more diverse day, you know, where the workplace is for more integrated with a mm -hmm. kind of active pedestrian experience. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I totally am with you. And like, uh, frankly, if my wife and I didn't have child, a child and we, yeah, we probably just move cities. Yeah, we probably like we. I don't think we want to be here because city hop. You just described a lot of things that Toronto doesn't have, um, and that's probably what we would have done. We would have gone to a cool place. Like Lisbon is one of my favorite cities in the world. Like I mean, again, I'm I'm being um, like whether I could legally I could go there or not is is, is not real. Like I'm just saying theoretically. No, I mean there's I mean? so many cities in the world and old cities, cities where people have proven this shit a thousand years ago. You know, yeah. we all talk about it in North America, like this is some new context, but no, it's just the, the, the forum for dialogue is new. 
Yeah, and America, yeah, North America in, in most cases is, is unfortunately not very livable in, in the downtowns. Yeah. So I don't know what it means. Like, I really don't because there's a lot of people that say, you know, it's nice to create more flexible and more hospitable office environments, but like that doesn't change the fact that most people don't want to come downtown. You yeah. Know, like, I'll tell you what we're learning from the teams that come to Startwell. Um, not just one-off teams, but teams that are turning into repeat customers as well that love the experience. Often cases, it's of course they love being here, right? The, we we're happy people that try and encourage you know freedom of of thought and so on. Um, and we have varied seating you know formats and all this sort of stuff architecturally design wise. Um, but we really try and integrate people to the pedestrian uh, feel. Which is why start well, you know, we have front doors. You walk in, we have a number of entrances. You can walk in from the street into our different buildings. So what we find is a lot of people that don't even have that experience in their life are experiencing it here. And it's really, really an interesting thing to walk in from the street and own your presence in a building that's not yours. Yeah, no. Feel welcomed. 100%. And then also walk out of the door to step across the road to get sushi or down the street to get some Italian, or those teams that are here for a day or multi-day will program a lot of it's around food, but a lot of activities that or you like can Gusto do. down the road or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so we're turning into this kind of like, you know, site for off-sites where, and this is what I was talking about with my friend Anthea at the City of Toronto, is that we actually act as like an ambassador for Toronto. We're an embassy of Toronto in Toronto. I, and no, and I would love to see more of it actually be in the periphery to the financial district because the problem with the financial district is it's barren and it's full of assholes. <laughs> like, like, how else can you really say it? Like, it's just like it's so uninviting to go to King Taps. <laughs> you know, what King I mean? Taps. I've never even been there. Okay, That's well, across like, from Sudforno. Uh, no, it's like it's on King Street, right? At like. King and University, like in Brookfield, or not Brookfield Place, First Canadian Place. Okay, I don't know. Like you go in there and like, it's just uninviting yeah. to be there. But the counterbalance is that there's like, you know, there's Troni and Adelaide, there's uh, Sudforno. I'm big on the Troni brand. Yeah, for sure. They're I awesome. love Troni, yeah. There's, there's pockets here and there. There are places, but again, you know, you need to know where you're going. I like that. the assembly hall. Like that was the only place I felt kind of normal in the financial district, like that sort of like whatever amalgamation of, of food stalls that mm. was in oh, uh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Richmond Adelaide Center. Yeah. And there was an, a level of like interaction and an activity that felt like normal people just like in a marketplace. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that I liked. And so it shows how space and what it's intended to be yeah. really informs a, the type of people that are going there, or if you're an asshole, you can't really be an asshole there anymore. You have to turn into not an asshole. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I think that there's an opportunity to, to reshape some of that financial district stuff. And you bring up an amazing point of like walking in off the street, being greeted hospitably, feel like you're part of the vibrancy and the heartbeat of the city. And I can actually attest to that, people watching, like that happens when you come here. Mm. And I think that it's harder in these big buildings and it's harder with big corporations that are in these buildings. Yeah, I, Convene is the only one that I have seen that is attempting to do this from like, they're trying to create an entry experience from the built, like the lobby of the building, usher you up to their space, make you feel taken care of. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think there is a place for that. Like, there's going to be a place for a big corporate version of what you're doing. Yeah, there's um, definitely hospitality brands that also, um, you know, have kind of like flipped this upside down in a very interesting way. Like, I was, um, I look at W. So, what W tries to do in a lot of their properties is, is kind of put their reception on a raised floor. And the idea is to change the expectation of the relationship to the street. And I don't know if this really works to the favor of the intention or the opposite, but typically you'll have like a restaurant on the ground floor uh -huh. and you'll have some sort of shop on the ground floor. They're part of the hotel. And then you go to like a second level to yeah. get to the reception. The reception. Yeah. I haven't so, been in a while, but okay. So what do you think of that? Yeah. Personally, I think it's a, it's an interesting concept because I think the idea of feeling welcomed it's huge. It's huge, but oh. it doesn't need to be attached to the retail, like the street level. But when you come in to have the sense of excitement and wonder, which is what they're playing on, is that you don't know what to expect. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's also exciting. And a hotel, yeah. like a hotel lobby kind of experience, whether that lobby is upstairs or not, 
is going to be far more interesting if anyone has taken a page out of Ian Schrager's book, you know, um, and design delight, right? Yeah, no, totally. I think you, compared I, to like going well, into some staid office building with some, you know, donut stained security guard saying, sign this book. And then you, I'll give you a key to go to that particular elevator to take yeah. you up to wherever hell you're going to. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And like, you made me think of an experience we had at the Ritz with my daughter in Montreal. I love walking off the street into the Ritz in yeah. Montreal. It's, it's, it's a, nice. it's a really cool, like throwback experience. Yeah. But what mattered more was that they took the time to remember our names, remember our dog's name, and that when we arrived for a second time, my daughter had chocolate-covered strawberries on the pillow of her bed, you know, like and like that feeling of taking care, being taken care of, yeah, having been memorable, right? Like they knew she loved that experience the last time we were there a year before, and then we come back, we don't say anything. They're just on her bed. Mm-hmm. Like that matters more than probably walking off the street. But if you can, if you can add, I think that heartbeat part of it that you, you're you're doing here, I think that that's the best of it all. Cool, man. Yeah, it's nice chatting. Totally, really fun. Really yeah. fun. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Right on.